chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, well, uh, did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. And he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water the father's flock. And some shepherds came along, and they drove them away. But Moses got up, and he came to When the girls returned to Rio, their father, he asked them, Why did you return so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruiel asked his daughters. Why, why did you leave him? Why did you him something to eat? And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter support, Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. And Moses named him Gershon. That's a picture of who we are. And so I pray this morning as we... Uh, reflect and meditate upon this passage that you would move by your spirit to show us the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ that our hearts might love him all the more and that we might be changed to be like him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now our passage today opens on where we left off last week, which was the miraculous salvation of baby Moses. You remember last week... Um, there's all kinds of questions that leave off from where we were. The baby's been saved from certain death. Remember, out of the Nile River, the daughter of Pharaoh has taken him into her household, adopted into Pharaoh's family. Pharaoh, who had passed this, uh, this uh, edict of this law of ethnic cleansing to destroy the Hebrew people. It didn't work. But now Moses, this baby, this Israelite, finds himself as essentially an adopted who wanted to kill his people. Now he nurses at the breast of his mother, but becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's where we leave off at the end of our passage last week. Pharaoh's daughter says that God took him out of the water. He's my son. And so he's a member of Pharaoh's household with everything that I mean. Now, of course, what it, we would, it means mostly what we would say are really good things. Think about it. He was a slave child. He's a member of the royal court. He has two years. He's going to learn what nobody else learns in Egypt. And in Egypt, pharaohs were seen to be a semi-divine. And so Moses would have been borderline worshipped by the Egyptian people. This is the grandson of Pharaoh. You know how captivated our world gets by the British royal family? Every time a kid's born, the, the, the clock stops. Every time there's any kind of drama going on in the British royal family, you know, they've got a microscope or a telescope or whatever kind of scope on them. They're watched constantly. Well, the, the family of Pharaoh in Egypt, that was that time, a thousand. 
So purely from an individual perspective, what I'm trying to say here is that Moses, personally, has hit the jackpot. He's hit the absolute jackpot. If he wants to, he can have an absolute life of luxury, never wanting for a single thing. He doesn't have to worry about bills being paid. He doesn't have to think about anything. He can have the greatest of everything money can buy. Now, I point all of that out because that must have impacted him, right? Because when we meet Moses here in our passage starting in verse 11, this isn't like the next day after his baby Moses saved from the Nile. This is 40 years later. Moses has lived four decades in the lap of luxury that we cannot imagine. And so the question, at least for me, is what is going to come of this man? He's Hebrew by birth, but he's been raised in the household of Pharaoh. He's been educated in the ideals and the values of an oppressive Egypt. What's going to become of this, this kid? Or, sorry, this 40-year-old man? Or to put it a different way, the question that would have been on the ears and in the minds of the people who would have read Exodus for the first time, when Moses arrives on the scene talking about freedom for the Israelites, could he be trusted? How in the world can this man, who has no idea what we've experienced, who has never experienced one, Show up on the scene and tell us to follow him. Why should we follow him? How can he, the kid who grew up in the heights of wealth, identify with the plight of slaves? Or to us today, a question that might be akin to that. How can we trust God in this world? If you think about it, God needs absolutely nothing. God is in want of nothing. In the terms of the book of Psalms, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which sounds weird to us. It's akin to saying he has a maxed out bank account in every bank in town. How can that God know our pain? Now in our passage, we see Moses taking his first steps out of the royal court. Steps taken not because he wants to go off and do his own thing, or steps taken to find himself, but steps taken because he sees the reality of the world in front of him. He sees the need. He sees the injustice and the broken relationships, and he decides that as far as he has anything to do with it, it cannot stand. It cannot stand. Now, we see him in three different scenes, and we're going to walk through each of them. Um, and the first one, I think we see this. This is in verses 11 and 12. We find out that the Redeemer of God's people, which is who Moses turns out to be, the person who leads them out of slavery, the Redeemer of God's people must be moved by his people's need. He must be moved by his people's need. Now you might notice, look at verse 11. It points out twice in just those two sentences in that verse that Moses was going to where his, quote, own people were. Now in Hebrew, repetition is a thing, is a way that they tell us something is important. They didn't have any way to like put text in bold. But if you see stuff repeated in the Old Testament especially, that's like putting it in bold in modern terms. This is the thing we're supposed to see. It's an indication here, as is pointed out, that Moses, for all of his experiences in Pharaoh's household, has not forgotten his people. Now, we don't know the road it took to get him there. We aren't told a lot of the information, right? The last thing we hear about Moses is he's taken out of the Nile, and then he's a 40-year-old going to see how his people are doing. 
When we encounter him, as I said, in verse 11, he's 40. That's four decades of privilege and wealth. And I'm sure there were experiences of discovery times when his understanding of the social structure of Egypt and its injustice grew. But in verse 11, we see this middle-aged man establishing his own right. And what does he do? He goes to where his people were. This wasn't an accident. He didn't wind up there that day on accident. He would have had to go out of his way to walk into where the Israelites were. And what does he see? He sees their hard labor. He sees the back-breaking labor that has happened and lasted for decades and generations. And verse 11 tells us that Moses sees more than just that. What does he see? He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, he sees an Egyptian who has all legal right to do this in that kingdom. The Israelites have no legal rights. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite terribly. And in response to seeing that, he acts to save the life of the Israelite. Now, this is not a hot-headed moment. Moses might have passionately responded here, but he realized what was going on. That's why he looked around to see if anyone was watching, because he knew this action in that world was a treasonous action. It was against the law in Egyptian law. In Egypt, by the law, the Israelites were little more than cattle. Now, I know that's a harsh thing to say and a harsh thing to think, but I want us to give perspective to what's going on here. He didn't just come across some random people uh, having a disagreement. It's a lot like the way that white Americans defined by law and, and thought of black slaves before the Civil War. There were no legal rights whatsoever. And Moses taking this action, this is the drama of the passage, Moses taking this action on defense of the Israelite, it's like uh, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy's son, defending a slave against a slave No, American history doesn't think of it. But that's what's happening here as Moses steps in. And in this, first scene, in this first scene, where Moses defends the life of this Israelite in a world that said that this Israelite's life did not matter, we see right here that he is being prepped to be the redeemer of God's people, a redeemer that points to Jesus, the ultimate Moses. We discover here that as a redeemer of God's people, he is moved by the need of God's people. He doesn't just see it happen and say, ah. Oh, he doesn't just see it happen and sit by and say, well, that stinks. We live in a world where stuff like this happens, huh? No, he sees it happen and he acts. He's moved to action. That's what Moses does. But we learn that it's an action that carries with the consequences. And that's where the story goes next. And we get to that second scene right here in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read it again. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought what I did was to become known. Here the issue of violence is raised again, except for this time, it's not an Egyptian against the Hebrew. It's two Hebrew men fighting each other. Now we aren't told why. We aren't told what happened to make this happen. We do know that the passage says that one of the men was in the wrong. So it was clearly an action. This wasn't like a boxing match that Moses came upon. This was Something unjust had happened. But we know that it was serious. Because this same word that described the Egyptian beating the Hebrew 
with, with fatal force is the same word used to talk about what the Hebrew is doing to the other Hebrew man here. I think what's important for us to see here in Moses' experience is that the violence, the issue, the sin that indwells and, and ruptures human relationships isn't just an issue out there. We'll learn this later on. It's not something that simply happens to Hebrews. It's as if a change of scenery can fix it. Because the Israelites are brought out of Egypt eventually. They're brought out of this unjust world that they have inhabited for generations. But when they are, they discover that the change of scenery, as great as that is, and I don't want to underwhelm the power of them being brought out of slavery, not at all. But it didn't fix their heart. That sin still dwelt within them. And it may have manifested in a different way. But it wasn't something that could be fixed in its entirety simply by a change of scenery. It's not just a problem out there. It's a problem in here as well. Coming to them. But the point is that the redemption that God was going to bring into our world was more than just moving the Israelites from one physical location to another. Moses intervenes here. And the response to the man in the wrong is mocking of Moses. He's mocking Moses. Are you going to do to me the same thing you did to that Egyptian? Maybe he felt like Moses was a stranger to his world. How dare you be in a How dare you? <laughs> the man who lives in Pharaoh's house at his own expense. How dare you intervene in my world? And then he lets him know what happened yesterday is well known. The action of Moses in defense of that Hebrew man has not led in others, has not inspired others toward justice. In fact, here the Hebrew man uses it as blackmail to try to manipulate. And this right here is what turns out to be the definitive break of Moses with the Egyptian house. He can't go back. He can't go back. That bridge has been burned. More quickly than he would like. I think Moses had already made the decision, as we said earlier, that he was going to cast his lot with the Israelites. But maybe he thought, well, I'm going to do it from my place of comfort. I'm going to stay at my house, and, but I'm still going to, I'm going to help, but then I'm going to go back home. <laughs> I'm going to stay in my comfortable palace, and I'll pop in from time to time and do some justice seeking, and then I'm going to go back. And I'll do it, you know, over time. I don't want to pick on them. That's kind of my default. I mean, you don't. Uh, it's hard to cast your lot in with uncomfortable things because they aren't fixed in a moment. Not the real tough stuff that happens in our world. But here, the issue's forced. That uh, that possibility is off the table. The bridge has been burned. Moses can't go back, and now he becomes an enemy openly rejected. A Pharaoh, he becomes just like the Israelites. The kind of mediator, the kind of redeemer, the kind of leader that God's people need cannot just come from Pharaoh's house. Moses could not have led the people out of slavery from the lap of luxury. It could not have happened. He couldn't have done it. It's, it had to take him leaving the halls of luxury and entering into the experience of his people. Not just seeing it and sympathizing with it, but it had to lead to him knowing their experience by taking it on himself. He could not be a stranger from the outside and just pop in for visitations of grace and then pop back out. Could not happen. The Redeemer that God's people needed 
had to be with them, alongside them, with them as one of them. And so seeing one, as we have people and their need into action, and then seeing two, we've seen that the Redeemer must take on the experience of God's people, must become one of them. And in scene three, I think we see something else. We see that the Redeemer isn't just an ethnic hero to save the Israelites or one concerned with just his people and just people that can show a birth certificate that they qualify. We see that the Redeemer has to have a wider view. And so scene three finds us in verses 15. And these women are there as well. And they come to draw water for their father's flock. And this was a common job for women in that time. And they've done all the work. We're supposed to see a scene where they've arrived and they've already started doing the work. They've already done all this hard work of drawing all the water and getting ready to, 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 to fill the troughs to feed their, or to water their father's flock and some shepherds descend on them and drive them away and take the water. Taking advantage of the women's hard work and taking it for their own. And so Moses intervenes. His heart for justice here as a stranger in a strange land compels him to action. Not only action to defend them against the shepherds, though, notice that he doesn't just drive them off. In verse 17, he also waters their flocks. He sees his calling not just to stop something from happening, but to do something positive uh, for the women. Now, we are told here that there is any interaction with the women after that. Because it, it, Moses does this, he feeds, and then the next thing we see is the women are having a conversation with their father. And he asked them in verse 17, uh, why are back so early? You notice that? Why, why are you back so early? And I think the thing that's implied there is that this happening of them drawing water and then being driven off by uh, shepherds is something that happened often. To the point that Moses intervening means they got back early in the normal time. It's something that happened a lot. When he asks them why you return so early today, it's because the delay must have been a common one, an ongoing issue that Ruyo, their dad, didn't know how to fix. It was an ongoing injustice that they had just learned to deal with. They bracketed in time for it. It just happened. In verse 19, the women tell their dad what they think they saw, and it's interesting. They call Moses, what, an Egyptian. Maybe he's still dressed in but they report that he rescued them and drew water for a sheep. And the dad immediately wants to know where this man is. Verse 21 tells us something. he has something more in mind than just feeding this guy dinner. Here's what I think is going on in his head. My daughter and my family have been harassed so often that no one here has helped us and I can't figure it out. But now a man showed up and helped. i got to make this guy my son of law now. Now we wouldn't call this exactly a fairy tale romance. Let me pop in here and each other. Notice they don't even talk in the passage to each other. And suddenly they're married in verse 21, and they're having a son in verse 22. Now, let me say this. This is not the Bible telling us that this is some kind of like relationship, romantic ideal that we've gotten away from, and like we need to move back to arranged marriages or, or, or something like that. Um, no. <laughs> in fact, if you read through the Bible, these arrangements never lead to happy uh, families. In fact, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't think of a single happy family in the Bible. Um, the Bible's full of broken families, full of families with real problems. 
There aren't a lot of uh, leave it to beaver uh, facade families in the Bible. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, <laughs> so what do we see in this third scene? We see that the Redeemer of God's people is not just a hero to save some ethnic Israelites. He's not just a guy showing up on the scene for this one singular group of people. Because no, it says in verse 15 that Moses fled to Midian, but Midian wasn't just the name of a place. It was a people. It wasn't just the name of some real estate. It was a group of people. And in fact, the ancestor of Midian was a son of Abraham, by Abraham's wife that he had after Sarah had passed away. So this is a cousin from way, way you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years back. But please note, that Midian, the son of Abraham, is not Isaac. He's not the one through whom the promise was carried on and through whom the promise will be fulfilled. And that might lead Israelites, if they're thinking in these terms, to be like that of Midian. Midian's not important. Midian. Here's the other thing. Not only that, not only that, Midian later will become a great enemy Their army became a frustrating thorn in their side later on. And so if you're right, if you were writing this at the time that Moses wrote this stuff down, and you know, uh, however many decades later after it happened, you might excise this out. Like you don't want a positive portrayal necessarily of the Midian because the Midianites are literally causing you strife and hardship constantly. But I think it's included here. It's pointed out that they were Midianites. And his wife was a Midianite. He, he came to the aid of a Midianite family. and was joined to a Midianite family. So that we would understand that the Redeemer of God's people, the one that will lead them out of slavery and into freedom, is not one who just has eyes for people that look and live like him. Notice that Moses didn't run up and he asked the women if they had any Israelite ancestry. He didn't run up and ask for their Ancestry.com print card. He didn't ask for a birth certificate. He didn't ask um, any of that. He saw injustice and he picked the side of those who were being oppressed. That's what he did. He saw it happen in front of him and he said, no. And so far as I can do anything, I'm, I'm entering myself in here and I don't need to ask... And with that, so those are the three scenes. Those three scenes we see Moses' detachment from Egypt is complete, which is what is recognized in verse 22 at the end. He names his son Gershom, which is what, what that means is I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. I've become a stranger in a strange land. He's saying my uh, removal from Egypt and the household and the palace of Pharaoh is complete. Um, but if that's our takeaway, if that's our only takeaway from this passage today, I think we've missed the point entirely. This is not an inspiring story for us to read and try to emulate. That's not the only, it's not like an Aesop's fable. This is not a cautionary tale of something to avoid. What this passage is, like all the scripture is, is a pointer that points us to Jesus. Because we read Exodus knowing this, that God does a mighty work through Moses, but we also read knowing that Moses, as great as his work as a leader was, was an incredibly flawed man. Moses himself was sinful. Moses himself was in need of saving. 
in all of his actions as the redeemer of God's people, who would see their need and be moved to action, who would enter into their suffering and take it on as his own, who wouldn't just have an eye toward one group but have a broader view. In all of this, Moses points to redeemer, the redeemer to come, Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, by nature God and unlimited in power and in His joy, one who shines in beauty and who has made all of the world by the word of His power as a theater for His glory. That's a transcendent picture of who Jesus is. But what did Jesus do in the face of our need? What did He do? Did He consider it from a distance and say, well, my rightful place is up here. My rightful place is on my throne, and I'm sorry that's happened and that stinks. No. What did Jesus do? He saw our great need, and he knew that it meant he needed to come and answer our need. The Redeemer of God's people has to be moved by the needs of God's people, and Jesus was just that. That's why he came. That's why the light has shone into the darkness. That's why the Word has put on flesh to dwell among us. And that brings us to our second one. Not just that. He wasn't just concerned with our need. He came to be one of us. The eternal Son of God taking to Himself a human nature. Descending into our world that He might win in every way that we fail. That He might carry his, our sins on His shoulders. That He might rightly judge the wickedness and injustice of this world. And in becoming one of us, He joined us to Himself. So that all that is His by right becomes ours by grace. He's the only begotten Son of God. But through Him, we become adopted sons and daughters of God. God carves out a room for us in His household. And it's ours through Jesus. He did this that the shame of our sin and the sins against us may be gutted under the power. And that every obstacle that stands in the way of us and His intention to crown us with glory and honor and show us His delight, that every barrier between those things would be removed. That every claim of the darkness against us might be denied. That every sin that we have committed might be finally dealt with. And He didn't just do this for one ethnic group. Jesus was an Israelite, was a brown-skinned poor man in the first century. But he didn't just do it for one ethnic group. He didn't just do this for men. He didn't just do this for adults. He didn't just do it for the able-bodied and the wealthy. His view was to gather to himself a people defined by his grace from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In this sense, Jesus is the true Moses. Moses uh, that we read about here, he is a shadow. You see a shadow on the ground and it points to a reality, right? You see a shadow outside and it looks like a car on the ground but you have to look from the shadow to the thing to see the actual reality of the car. When we see Moses, we see a shadow of Jesus. That is what we see. And so our takeaway here in this passage is not here's some stuff to do. Here's some stuff to emulate. No, today we recognize that in this story we are not Moses. In this story we are the Israelites enslaved in this world that works by the rules of Pharaoh. In this story we are the Egyptian that have used people for our own purposes. We are the shepherds who have taken advantage of others. And we are the daughters of Ruel who are helpless. We need a redeemer. Not Moses. 
We need the Redeemer that Moses is pointing to. And the good news, friends, is that it's not just a discovery that we need Him. The good news this morning is that the Redeemer has come. The Redeemer has come. And yes, through this Redeemer we are transformed to become people who care about injustice, who are moved by the needs of others into compassion and action, who do not limit our concerns to people who look or act like us. But all of that, all of those actions, those are fruit that flow from a root of God's profound love for us in Jesus Christ. And that fruit may ebb and flow, maybe seasons where we see more fruit than, than not, but that root, it holds. The root is steadfast because it doesn't depend upon us. The root is God's profound love for us in Jesus that is older and stronger than our sin. So let's lean upon Him. The Redeemer of God's people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glorious riches of who Jesus is. I thank you, Lord, that we get this picture of Moses who was called by you to redeem his people from the evils of Egyptian slavery. But we thank you, Lord, that it's a shadow of the real Redeemer, of Jesus, the one who walked in obedience to you. And who, though crucified, was raised from the dead in power, vindicated by you, and has turned around and given to us by grace all that is his by life. Thank you for this glorious truth. Embedded upon our hearts, Lord. Make it the center of who we are, the root of who we are, that we might be nourished by it and grown by it always. And help us, Lord, by your spirit, to bear the fruit of that root. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.